following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number eight on Morgoth's Ring. Uh, and uh, we are getting to the really meaty bits uh, here. This is, uh, and you know, one of the things that kind of surprises me about um, the way that Christopher has presented this. I'm not saying, I'm not complaining about the way that he's organizing it. That is, you know, so like he seemed kind of self-conscious about the fact that he just kind of, you know, like, I'm going to interrupt the middle of this new version of the Quenta to give you the laws and customs of the Eldar, right? Like, you know, and, and he sort of seems to feel a little bit sheepish about that, right? Like knowing that it seems like a bit of a non sequitur, random text in the middle, and then we'll get back to the notes that were based on that and connected to that and other things. And I get that. I totally understand that. The part that seems to me a little bit, um, I don't know what, odd, maybe? I don't know, is that there aren't like neon signs pointed to it's the way that's kind of buried in the text right i mean uh this is really amazing stuff uh and um it's uh it's it's really really cool so i mean from uh, you know from as soon as we get to phase as soon as we've gotten to phase two this has been like, uh, uh, to me, this has been like a page turner. You'll notice we're going to slow down a good deal. That is total number of pages that we cover. Not total number of slides, but total number of pages that we cover during this uh, class session tonight. It's not going to be huge. Uh, but that's mostly because I find this stuff all so fascinating. Um, and... Um, you know, Robbie, I definitely sympathize. I mean, Robbie's saying that this uh, uh, this book was uh, has been a bit more of a slog than most of the other uh, volumes of the history of Middle Earth, and I totally get that. Um, I was feeling that way too uh, through the majority of the first half of the book, but again, as soon as we've gotten to phase two, all of a sudden, I'm uh, um, I am I am uh, really fascinated uh, but there's a lot uh that is there's a lot of stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of slow down a little bit I'm, I'm not gonna even pretend i'm on the schedule anymore we'll just compare and contrast at the end and see how we do um but uh anyhow let us jump right back into we were talking last time well actually hang on before we do any jumping, uh, let me just mention, I, I won't talk about it a whole lot because I talked about it a good deal last week, but I definitely wanted to mention again to remind you that we are, uh, the, our registration is open for our new program, Signum Path, uh, our, our new uh, career skills program. Um, just a, a really, really valuable opportunity for folks uh, who want to improve their resumes, who you know, would like to remove some of the obstacles that have been obstacles for you your whole career, things that are keeping you from, you know, being able to to, to, to be promoted, for being able to, to apply for certain jobs. There's a lot of doors that really good communication skills, that really good writing skills open. That's, um, that's a that's a huge deal. Um, so I definitely wanted to uh, just draw that to your attention, commend that to you. We, we've opened our registration. First classes are in June, uh, and and we have our, our schedule posted through June, July, and August. Each class session is one month. Uh, these are short little terms. Um, 
So definitely commend that to you. Go to our PATH webpage, path.signumuniversity.org, uh, and you can check out all of our whole program. Really exciting stuff there. Two other things also to remind you of. Well, I say remind. One of them I didn't announce last week because the announcement didn't officially come out until Thursday, the day after class. So it'll be my first time announcing it here, but you might have heard it elsewhere, and that is we have officially rescheduled Mythmoot. We're going to have Mythmoot on the first weekend of August. So between the 6th and 9th of August uh, will be the dates of Mythmoot this year, of course, originally scheduled for the last weekend of June. Um, moved ahead uh, just a little bit to the first weekend of August, um, which should be um, uh, uh, should be uh, uh, better for a lot of folks, and of course, we're we're hoping to avoid um, some of the uh, the you know sta- the stay-at-home orders in the state of Virginia and everything. So we're hoping that that should be um, better, right? So um, that's that's the plan. And of course, as always, we will see what happens. But um, anyway, yes, yeah, sixth through ninth of August are now the official dates of Mythmoot. So I uh, hope that uh, you guys will be able to join us. I am, I cannot even tell you how much I am looking forward to going to a moot again. Oh my goodness. Like moots are one of the only things I've been missing over the last couple months. In most ways, of course, my own daily life has changed relatively little. My kids are around more, but apart from that, uh, you know, life uh, in quarantine has been pretty much like my normal life. Sitting in my basement, on my laptop, communicating with people all day long and all night. That's kind of how I roll. Um, but uh, moots. I have missed moots, right? Um, so uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, Stephen, great question. Um, no, you do not need to re-register um, unless you told us to cancel it, we are carrying over the registrations from the earlier ones. So uh, no need. Of course, if you can't make the new dates or if something comes up or if it's not possible for you to... I mean, obviously, we are not even asking questions. Like, if you can't come, we get it. We totally get it, and you can get a refund. Um, of course, we do still we do have the Mootcast option again this year, which I think will be especially valuable to a bunch of folks this year to be able to tune in uh, to the sessions live and get the archived recordings of all of the Myth Moot sessions. Um, uh, so that's uh, uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be really cool. Yeah, I've been missing the regional moots. You know, we've uh, I'm really hoping we can get things kind of back in order here before too long. Um, but yeah, Sharon uh, points out if you if you registered for MythMoot, you should have received an email notification. Uh, you should have gotten an email uh, from the MythMoot planning team um, about the registration. But but again, yeah, n- no need to re-up. Uh, we're we're uh, unless you told us you're you you need to cancel. We're we're assuming and hoping that you're that you're still able to come. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, you know, Robbie, if we I haven't thought about it yet. I mean, we haven't generally done mootcast with regional moots. Uh, we'll have to see how things go. If we're able to resume in the fall with regional moots, I'm excited to resume with regional moots. If we still find it to be an obstacle to do regional moots in the fall, then trying to figure out some kind of, you know, did, for now we've just been postponing them, hoping for them because I really want to do them. Um, but yeah, uh, we're not going to just carry on um, uh, rescheduling forever. Um, 
uh, or I, I, by the way, it's become one of my like a tiny little COVID pet peeve of mine. Right? Is uh, how people always uh, more and more organizations talk about uh, they don't cancel things, right? They indefinitely postpone things, and that seems to me just cowardly. Like if you're gonna cancel it, cancel it. Say it's you know, come on, like you know, grow a spine and say you're canceling it. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, we've been postponing. I want to reschedule the moots that we've missed and I want to do the ones that we can't, but if it proves impossible, I don't want to just cancel all the moots this year. I want to do something, even if it's not the same. So yeah, we'll definitely think about that. Um, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, all right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I knew there was one other thing. It's one other thing I was trying to forget. I was no, trying to forget. No, I was trying to remember, uh, but it was uh, almost useless. But anyway, I did remember, and that is, uh, don't forget to nominate. The no- nominations are open for our next book of the course of the you know these next weeks. We will be uh, beginning to tally votes, and uh, for, you know it's, we're we're collecting nominations. Then we're going to vote on the final slate, and then there will be. Uh, uh, we will announce the next book that we will be doing in Mythgard Academy. That's always exciting. Uh, so don't forget uh, to nominate. There's a link. Uh, uh, Ed will have sent you a um, uh, an email uh, with the link to the uh, forum uh, discussion board where people are doing the nominations. I would urge you to like lobby. You know, the comments on the discussion threads are designed for people to argue for and against uh, these things. You might be able to talk some folks into voting your way. Um, If everybody just kind of makes a list and then everybody kind of randomly votes, then, you know, you're unlikely to, you know, it's a it's crapshoot at that point. Right. But, you know, if you can uh, talk some folks over and convince them why it would be awesome, then you've got a better chance. So, um, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've not looked yet at the list of nominees. Uh, uh, Francis was just saying that there's some great nominations in there. I'm sure they're all. I'm always really excited to see them. Uh, so we will. Uh, we will see. We will see. Um, <laughs> Stephen wants to know how much does it cost to run ads for your book selection before each class. <laughs> oh, it doesn't work that way. But uh, we'll talk about that. Actually, I think I could probably name a price. Just kidding. Um, except not. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Seriously, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, good. That was the other thing I was supposed to remember. So let us jump back into the text now. Um, we were just in the middle of Christopher's confessions, and I want to do a bunch more of his confessions because, come on, how awesome is that, right? Um, how awesome is that? Um, so let's uh, jump into the next one. The name Nahar of Orame's horse first appears in the Annals of Amon, page 70. After the words, for the pursuit of the evil creatures of Melkor, the Silmarillion, page 29, the Valaquenta texts have, but the Valaroma is not blown, and Nahar runs no more upon the Middle-earth since the change of the world and the waning of the elves whom he loved. This sentence goes back through the versions to Quenta Silmarillion, though the Valaroma does not appear in it until the later Quenta uh, TypeScript 2, and Nahar uh, not till the Valaquenta, and I regret its exclusion from the Silmarillion. Okay, so uh, 
this sentence has been in there for a long time and he cut it out of the Silmarillion. Now, he doesn't explain why he cut it out of the Silmarillion, which is fine. I am interested in following the thread of Tolkien's thought. I am only pruriently curious about Christopher Tolkien's thought, right? Or that is to say, 1970, like mid-1970s Christopher Tolkien thought. Like, what was the process that led Christopher to make the changes that he made um, in the Silmarillion? I'm like, I'm kind of curious about that, uh, but it's, you know, a, a, a relatively idle curiosity. The important thing that I'm trying to see uh, is the overall shape here, right? So let us note that although uh, this, this sentence, of course, is not in the published Silmarillion, but the Valoroma is not blown and Nahar runs no more upon the Middle-earth since the change of the world and the waning of the elves whom he loved. Um, but that sentence was there all along, right? Um, it goes back through the versions to the Quenta Silmarillion, that is the 1937 Quenta, right, uh, is when that sentence emerged. Um, Christopher cut it, doesn't tell us why he cut it, um, but notice what that shows. And this is sort of an interesting thing here, right? Um, one thing that's interesting about that sentence, um, that sentence which we didn't get in the published Silmarillion, is its perspective, right? Now, this is not me trying to guess why Christopher cut it. Maybe this has something to do with it, and maybe it doesn't. But I can't help but notice that this is a sentence that kind of breaks the... I was about to say breaks the frame. The irony is it breaks the non-frame, right? That is, this makes more sense if, it, if, if this is Alfwina speaking, right? Um, but the Valoroma is not blown, and Nahar runs no more upon the Middle-earth since the change of the world and the waning of the elves. Who's talking there? Right when Alfwina is out of the picture, it's harder to understand that. That's a this is a, but again, as I've said many times, I love the frame, love the frame. I think that the Alfwina frame is a, in my humble opinion, at least for me personally, a massive enrichment of the Silmarillion story and helps me in so many ways, uh, to understand the narrative in new and fruitful ways. Um. Exactly, Zach. It does connect it with our world. Um, it connects this world with our own world a lot more than the rest of the Silmarillion. Again, I'm not just trying to quote this to speculate as to why he did, you know, and what he didn't explain there. Um, but I, I, my point is this element um, is it does run through the text, not just in the places where Alfwina interrupts. Right. This is to me one of the, uh, or in Zach, the way that you said it. Uh, is really what I was um, what I was talking about, right? Um, that the impact of the frame on the Silmarillion it does establish the connection with us, right? It does, um, and I am really interested not just in the way... Oh, it's, it's, it's not just this sentence, right, uh, that I find so interesting, um, but the effect that this extra sentence has on all the rest of it, right? This comes at the end of the description of Orome, and it ends by making, you know, Zach, as you're suggesting, like, Orome relevant to our lives, right? <laughs> relevant to our world. Um, 
it helps to one of the one of the downsides of the Silmarillion, one of the difficulties with the Silmarillion is that it feels so distant, right? I think that I'm not saying that a lot of people necessarily ask this question in these words exactly when they're reading the Silmarillion, but the impression that I have gotten from many readers of the Silmarillion who have been struggling to read the Silmarillion, students of mine and whatnot, is basically, why should I care about any of this stuff, right? Like, I'm, I'm getting all this data, right? Talking about the different names and how their names change and, and you know, these lists of people and stuff and, like, why, why should I care, you know, like this is, is there, is there going to be a test on this? Right. Why should I care? Now, this is, of course, stuff that people who are already Tolkien fans love. This is like, you know, this is like, you know, fresh water and strong meat uh, to uh, to 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 a Tolkien fan. Right. Um, but to someone who is just sort of a more casual reader of Tolkien or heaven forfend somebody who just whose first Tolkien book is the Silmarillion that they've picked up. Right. Um, it's, uh, you know, why should they care? Why, why should they be interested? And the Valaquinta, you know, the Aina is elegant and beautiful and poignant. Uh, the Aina you know, stylistically is, 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 a little bit of a challenge in some ways, but I don't feel like the Ainulindale is where we lose a lot of people, first-time Silmarillion readers. But you know where I think we lose a lot of them? The Valaquenta, right? Exactly here. Um, because it's just a list, like, why, who, who cares who the Valar are and what they are, right? Again, I'm not saying that I don't care, but what I'm saying is it's not clear, right? It's not clear. Um why we should care. Um, and uh, um, interesting, Karita. I didn't know that. Karita says that uh, her first Tolkien book was The Silmarillion. Uh, I was a kid. It was rough, but I am stubborn, she says. There you go. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. See, Kevin, I'm not sure I agree with you. I'm not sure that the early chapters of the Quenta... I'm sure it's true that the early chapters of the Quinta wouldn't make sense without them. But, Kevin, that's not the point. You've not read the first couple chapters of the Quinta yet before you read the Valaquenta, right? I mean, you, you, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be important in some ways later on. Again, I'm not saying it should be cut. That's not the point. The point is the frame is an enrichment. That's it. That's it. The frame is an enrichment, right? It makes, uh, it gives a totally different kind of appeal. It contextualizes the entire narrative in a new and I think really powerful way. Um, uh, and uh, yeah. Oh, Brian. Yeah, I can see that too. Brian says it's a bit like how I felt the, felt the first time I started the Lord of the Rings when I read the introduction without having uh, read any of the story. I wasn't sure who hobbits were or why I should care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's a big mistake. Um, that I mean, I... Putting that at the beginning, the concerning hobbits 
section. Um, I totally think it should be at the end in the appendix. I think that should be Appendix A. And the current Appendix A should be Appendix B. Um, honestly, like, I, I don't think that should be the introduction at all. Um, but then again, I'm pretty biased against introductions anyway. I'm not a big fan of introductions. I always read them last if I read them at all. And, um, uh, but... But anyway, yeah, no, Brian, I totally, I totally hear you there. Um, again, I'm not saying, not saying I don't like it, not saying I don't like it, right? It's really good. I love it. I just don't think it like should be first, right? And yeah, Kevin, I know that uh, the audiobook puts it at the end. I wholeheartedly approve. I, I think that that was excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, a couple of you are pointing that out. No, I thought that was a huge, a huge improvement. Huge improvement. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly, Marie. I've always skipped. I mean, heck, I do now. Even, like, I still skip the prologue and come back and read it at the end. Uh, I mean, it's just, yeah, that's just how I do it. Um, but, um, anyway, cool. So, anyhow, sorry. Um uh, and again, not protesting is all I'm saying is the frame has an impact. And for me, it is uh, it is an impact which is felt throughout. And a sentence like this, this would have been huge, would have been huge to convey. There's a kind of, well, to use a word that C.S. Lewis was really fond of. There's a kind of numinous, numinousness to this, right? This is not just inviting you to think about this list of gods in this mythology, right? Which maybe you're interested in, maybe you're not interested in. Um, this is a mythic moment. The Valoroma is not blown, and Naha runs no more upon the Middle-earth since the change of the world and the waning of the elves whom he loved. Um, every element of this, right? Um, how the Valoroma is no longer blown, right? Naha runs no more upon the Middle-earth since the change of the world. We have no idea what that means in the Valaquenta, right? There's no, if you're a first-time reader, you have no way of knowing. Wait, the world is going to change, right? The elves are going to wane. I've not even been introduced to the elves yet. I'm told they're going to wane already, right? But I get this, the references to those things and the long-term impact. I mean, the sense of future loss, like brace yourself for future loss, Right. Not to mention the characterization, the extra characterization that it gives to Orame. Right. Um, uh, I think. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Cecilia was just saying that uh, she actually her first Tolkien book was the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's even harder. <laughs> I totally I totally. Yeah, that I can't even imagine. Um, but. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Chris. Whether you know to what it refers, it conveys sorrow. And perhaps the more so if you don't, what it, don't know what it means. It is, I agree. It is like a kind of textual ruin here, right? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think this sentence is mythically powerful and evocative. Um, and, uh, and again, recontextualizes not just the Orame section, but almost everything that we've heard so far in the Valaquenta. It, there's, there is a, there's an impact of this, right? Um, anyway, just saying, not trying to harsh on you, Christopher Tolkien, for cutting that out. Just saying. Okay, here it comes. Shocking confession. 
The words in the published text concerning Aonwe, whose might in arms is surpassed by none in Arda, were an editorial edition, made in order to prepare for his leadership of the hosts of the West at the great battle. For the end of the Elder Days, there is scarcely any material from the period following the Lord of the Rings. Okay, we'll come back to that last sentence in a second, but can you... I mean, I hope you were sitting down. He didn't tell you to sit down, right? This is Christopher confessing that he wrote prose. There it is. He wrote those words himself. J.R.R. did not write Whose Might in Arms is Surpassed by None in Arda. Christopher made that up himself, right? That uh, is a shocking kind of story. Now, Arthur says, I always wondered about that. Could Aonwe kick Tolkas's or Orome's behind? Yeah, I know. It is a little bit... I have to admit, Arthur, that I also had always been a little bit confused by that passage because it seemed like none in Arda. I was like, that said, I mean, when did he get, does he have a belt? Like a big wide belt? I don't know. But anyway, like when did he get the belt and how did it happen? Right. I mean, it's, it's, but anyway, you know, um, I, anyway, I agree, Arthur. It does kind of, it always did kind of seem to me a little bit odd, like, well, except for, you know, Tolkas and probably Orame. Um, but here's, here's one of the things. Now, here's, uh, because the game of, now, and I've said many times, of course, fully acknowledged, playing the Critfic game, right, where you try to, think why the author did the thing, right? Like, what was in the author's mind when he wrote the thing? That's a, a really low-reward game. Well, it's high, highly rewarding in the sense that it's fun, right? Uh, in fact, almost inescapably and compellingly fun. Um, so there's that. But as far as, like, your odds of being correct, right? Totally acknowledge that uh, almost everything I say about that is probably wrong. Um, however, um, uh, even more fun and even, and like exponentially lower probability of correct is not just trying to guess what was in Tolkien's mind, but trying to conclude what was in Tolkien's mind by guessing what was in Christopher's mind when he made a change, because that clearly rock solid, right? Um, so because here's my inevitable question that I can't stop myself asking. Why did he add that? Why? Why? I mean, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because Christopher, I mean, he really tries not to do that, right? Um, there, are, We have seen him confess this before, right? He has twice before confessed passages that of prose that he himself wrote, right? Um, usually short passages, but he only wrote them the, the two and the two that I'm thinking of, just to remind you, is that first that sentence about Celebrimbor leaving his father um, when Celegorm and Curufin get kicked out of Nargothrond, right? After their sort of disgrace in Nargothrond and they get kicked out and we're told that at this time Cele, uh, uh, Celebrimbor um, was separated uh, from the rest of his uh, uh, from the rest of his of his family, right? Uh, of, you know, separated from his father. Um, Christopher confessed, I don't remember which volume it was in, I think maybe five, maybe back in the Lost Road. He confessed that he wrote that sentence, right? It wasn't in the, but he, he wrote it because 
there had been no reference to Celebrimbor at all, for the very good reason that Celebrimbor was not <laughs> invented yet, right? But, like, he, this was a question that, like, would come up, right? But And Tolkien meant to go back and put Celebrimbor in, but he'd never gotten around to retconning Celebrimbor, so he felt, Christopher felt, that in order to maintain consistency, right, and to answer the inevitable question, what happened with Celebrimbor, right? How does Celebrimbor get to where he's going to go and why doesn't he die with his father and all those, uh, uh, all those other things? Um, anyway, that's, uh, so that was one sentence and it was in order just to fill in a, a gap and clearly he did a minimal thing, right? I mean, that one sentence points at a whole story, right? This, the schism that opened between Kurufin and Celebrimbor, right? Obviously, a lot more that could be said about that story, but Christopher doesn't even try. He doesn't write a story about it. He doesn't interject a whole paragraph even. He just gives the one quite bald sentence mentioning that it happened, right? The other sentence that he confessed uh, to um, composing himself that I'm recalling off the top of my head, and if you remember another one, let me know, um, uh, is the reference to the dragon that was guarding the um, uh, the exit from Gondolin, right, from, from the valley, was, uh, guarding the hidden way. Um, and there, again, what he's doing is he was, the version, the primary version of the text that he was using, um, because it was the last version that Tolkien wrote, which is the Book of Lost Tales version, um, well, no, not the Book of Lost Tales version. It was, I think, the 1932 Quentin Nolarinwa version based on that one. But anyway, that was the latest version of The Fall of Gondolin that Tolkien wrote. And so that's the one that Christopher Tolkien primarily draws upon uh, for the published Silmarillion. But some details of that story changed later on. Tolkien never rewrote it, but he but the details did change. So Christopher put that sentence in. And again, it's a minimalist sentence designed to convey the information about the way that the story had changed or developed, but which hadn't been written into the version that Christopher was including in the published Silmarillion. So fine. Okay, so in other words, those two examples that he confessed to before were inserted by him in order to fill gaps, right? Or answer questions like, what happened to Kel Brimbor and when did he leave his father? You know, what happened there? We get the answer to that, right? Hey, wasn't there a dragon? Yes, there was a dragon. Um, why does he add this? He says, made in order to prepare for his leadership of the hosts of the West at the great battle. Do you see the problem there? I don't mean the problem with what Christopher did. Again, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, in all of this, I'm not trying to be harsh on Christopher at all, right? Um, why? What gap is Christopher trying to fill here? Why is it? Um, why is it that... Why is it that Christopher felt this was a big enough gap to fill with his own prose, which he's so reluctant to do? Yeah, Zach, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly it. Zach is saying that 
Aonwe was the son of Manwe before this, right? Absolutely. And remember, he's only just been demoted, right? Um, yes, exactly. Aonwe was, until quite recently, the son of Manwe and Varda. So in the old versions of the story, when Aonwe, or Feonwe, as he was then, um, was the son of Manwe, doesn't need any explanation. Who needs an explanation for that, right? I mean, he sensed that, you know, the crown... The crown prince is leading the army. What could be more normal, right? If Manway's not going to go himself, then, um, fine, right? Fine. He's going he's gonna to send him. Um, and his role as, you know, like the idea that he would have some kind of captaincy, right, in the army, like, in, you know, the, the hosts of the West makes all kinds of sense, right? But that's not him anymore. Right. So. What this suggests to me is that Tolkien had we've seen this, right? This is one of the our issues that we've been tracking throughout Morgoth's Ring so far. One of these central issues that Tolkien keeps wrestling with in this post Lord of the Rings world. Right. The question of fundamentally, who are the Valar? What is their relationship with the physical world? Right. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing is he has now come to a place here. Uh, in phase two, in the late 50s, where he has decided, no, no, the Valar really don't have bodies in the normal way, right? They're not going to get married and have children, like beget and bear children, right? That is not how the Valar roll. That is not the kind of bodies that they have. Um, They can body themselves forth, but the relationship between the being or spirit of... uh, uh, of one of the Valar and their bodies doesn't work like that, right? Um, so, um, yeah. Um, so he's decided that. Right, Kevin, mostly, right? With a significant melian-shaped exception to that doctrine, right? But there again, we can see him having the same old problem that we've seen him having in a bunch of other places, right? Like the consistency of reality on the one hand and the mythic story that he doesn't want to let go of on the other hand. We've seen this with the orcs. We see this here too, right? Luthien is a challenge. Um, But we can try to get around that, right? And Ungoliant, Josiah, an excellent point, right? An excellent point. Um, Uh... Ungoliant is going to bear children as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's it's troublesome, right? But he's made his call, right? That was pretty firm, and it's clear at this point that he's made that call, and he's kind of working that out. Maybe he hasn't worked out all the kinks yet, um, worked through all of the ramifications, figured out a way to reconcile that fact with the old myth, you know, the new fact with the old myth. But... But he's there. And here's poor Aonwe left out high and dry, right? Now he's just, what, Manwe's servant, right? Why is Manwe letting his servant lead the armies? It's a point that seems to need an explanation. And Christopher clearly thought it needed an explanation, like, to the same degree that something like, hey, where the heck was Celebrimbor? 
you know, the son of Kurafin all this time um, needed an explanation in Christopher's mind such that he composed a sentence, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, it seems, therefore, that this is one of those moments where Christopher certainly appears to be thinking this needs explanation, this gap um, between what happened in the old stories and what Tolkien was working towards through this new process, right? Um, this new process of reconciliation of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. Christopher says, okay, we, we've got to go with that. We've got to go with that that later thing, right? But it, there needed to be a little bit more retcon and Tolkien never got around to it, right? Tolkien did not include anything like this. Um, and, um, you know, there we go. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Zach, it is... The explanation for why Manway doesn't come and lead the armies of the, of the West against Morgoth at the end in the War of Wrath have always seemed to me rather puzzling and weak as well. I mean, I'm kind of willing to go along with the idea that, like, oh, what if they had done so? It would have, like, broken the whole earth again and um, killed lots and lots of people, so they didn't want to do that. Except all of Beleriand ends up sinking anyway, so, like, well, that didn't pan out, did it? Anyway, like I said, I've never been 100%... Uh, um, I've never been 100% uh, uh, sold on that, Zach, myself, either. Have to confess. Look at that. We're all doing confessions tonight. Anyhow, um, okay. Let's get on to the next juicy con next juicy confession. Again, boy, I they keep coming. A new Gandalf quotation, of which we were deprived for many years. At the end of the account of Aloran is scribbled on the typescript Valaquenta I. He was humble in the land of the blessed, and in Middle-earth he sought no renown. His triumph was in the uprising of the fallen, and his joy was in the renewal of hope. This appears in Valaquenta II, but my father subsequently placed inverted commas round it. It was wrongly omitted from the Silmarillion. Ouch. Man, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. George, you know, that's really interesting. An interesting way to think about it. George is saying that uh, he thinks Christopher regretted these changes so much that the history of Middle-earth kind of becomes his Silmarillion, and he almost regrets ever attempting the consolidation of 1977. Uh, maybe. Maybe in some ways. Um, uh what interests me, uh, honestly, most in retrospect, George, um, uh, is that he didn't attempt a like radically new edition, right? I mean, we've, we 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 can see that he not only 
understands things better now, has a better grasp of the text as he himself is explaining, um, would clearly make some decisions in other ways, right, in the published text. Um, why didn't he take a new crack at it later on, right? Um, to some extent, perhaps, the later books that Christopher published, right? Things like Baron and Luthien, The Fall of Gondolin, that kind of thing. Maybe that's sort of his attempt to like his version, like the, 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 the really late version of that kind of thing. Um, maybe, but I don't know. It's, I would, uh, I would have loved to see that, but my goodness, um, talk about ingrate, right? I don't want to complain. If only Christopher Tolkien had done more, you know, like honestly, boy, yeah, that's not what I want to say. Right. Um, anyway, uh, Jennifer, I agree. Isn't this, isn't that a beautiful pair of sentences? Let me read it again. He was humble in the land of the blessed, and in Middle-earth he sought no renown. His triumph was in the uprising of the fallen, and his joy was in the renewal of hope. That sounds like the coolest epitaph ever, right? Like, I would, I would love to have that on my tombstone. His triumph was in the uprising of the fallen, and his joy was in the renewal of hope. I mean, man, could you get a better epitaph than that? Holy cow, that is so beautiful. Um, I absolutely love this quotation. Um, so he, he said that, uh, yeah, so my father subsequently placed inverted commas around it, so he put, like, quotation marks around it, essentially. Um, uh, he, he marked it, and I, I think what Christopher is saying, that his own, Christopher's interpretation had been that his father meant to cut that sentence, but he now believes that that was wrong, um, and that it should not have been omitted, or maybe it was accidentally omitted and he didn't even mean to, I'm not really I'm not really sure, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, Brandon says, no wonder Cairdon gave Gandalf his ring I know, right? I mean um, yeah yeah, Cecilia, it does rank right up there with the Estel quote. I mean, that is, uh, uh, that is just, it's not just that we got some other random sentence about Gandalf, right? I mean, that is a meaty pair of sentences. That is a gorgeous pair of sentences right there. These are like sentences people would have, like, cross-stitched on their walls, right? In little frames and things. Uh, I mean, that's uh, really, really gorgeous. Um, Jennifer, that's a fantastic idea. Uh, Jennifer says, it would be a great prompt for a paper, right? Um, his triumph was in the uprising of the fallen and his joy was in the renewal of hope. You know, compare and contrast that with the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, show me how we can see these ideas uh, coming to coming, you know, to birth, right, during the Lord of the Rings. Um, because, of course, it's one of the things, right, Jennifer, it's your idea, you get dibs on it. Um, absolutely. Um, but, um, yeah, so one of the things that is so delightful about, of course, the whole Aloran passage uh, from the Valaquenta, but especially delightful about these lost sentences is that they serve as a kind of, um, well, I've been saying epitaph, like an epitaph on the Lord of the Rings. I'm not an epitaph. Let's get off the tombstone idea, but rather um, this is like a, not summary, a conclusion, right? Like looking at the, you know, him reflecting back 
over Gandalf's role in the story, and this is how he describes it, right? Um, that's not to say, and I, this is one thing that always that I, I always sort of want to caution against. Um, it's not safe to take these sentences and go back and reread The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings from the beginning with these in mind, saying, like, this is what Tolkien was getting at the whole time, right? It's not what he was getting at the whole time. He didn't have this in his head the whole time. It's cooler than that, right? This is when he looked back and he saw what had happened, right? He looks back at the course of Gandalf's character, at where Gandalf's character ends up, and this is what he says at the end, right? This is how he characterizes it looking back on the whole thing. And so there's a kind of uh, uh, there's a kind of glory, right, that is cast back over. And so it can absolutely can uh, transform all of those earlier passages, right? To think about everything in this context, having been kind of given permission in a sense by Tolkien, right, to sort of actively read this back into what was going on. Again, it's it's going to mislead us if we think this is what his motivation was the whole time, right? This is what he was getting at the whole time. That, I think, would mislead us. But again, he's, giving, he's given us permission to say, this, I think, is the core of the matter, right? This is the important element of Gandalf's character. And that, I think, is really, really cool. Um, uh, Zach, I, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. If anybody has the text on them and wants to look it up, you can tell me. I'm trying to remember what Christopher says about dating in the uh, essay on the Astari. Uh, what are the dates on the essay of the, well, the different elements that are combined by Christopher into the essay on the Astari. Uh, if I, as I'm remembering, Zach, I think a lot of that stuff comes from this time too, late 50s. Um, I tend to think that that's when most of it was drawn. So about the same time. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Josiah says it reminds me of how people notice that Gandalf laughs more at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. More. More confessions. All right. The tense stuff. Okay. So this is really interesting. I mean, it doesn't sound interesting really much at all, right? Let me, let me make it. Well, it's not a confession. I shouldn't characterize it that way. Um, okay. You'll remember that Christopher says right before this passage that I've quoted here, he talks about how the uh, tenses are really inconsistent uh, in the Valaquinta, um, and how Christopher, as editor, really struggled with that um, and tried to reconcile it. Now. Side note. There are a number of occasions on which Christopher has said, my father's usage is really inconsistent. Uh, like basically where Christopher has concluded that Tolkien was just screwing up, was just being inconsistent, uh, and Christopher has wanted to correct it. And there have been a couple of occasions on which I disagree with him about that, in which I basically, it seems to me that what's happening there is that there is in fact a pattern that Tolkien was following, just Christopher is not discerning it, right? Um, this is, um, this came in, uh, 
Alyssa, I see that you're here tonight. This reminds me of the discussions, Alyssa, you and I had back in 2011 about usage of capitalizations and uh, hyphens uh, in The Hobbit. Uh, Alyssa was helping me in the editorial process. She was one of my uh, one of my editors, helping me to make sure helping me to make sure I didn't make any laughable snafus and misquoting the text and stuff of The Hobbit in my Hobbit book when I was writing it. And um, one of the things that Alyssa and I were working on, we were kind of quietly trying to hold the line against the Houghton Mifflin proofreaders who um, wanted to change Tolkien's usages. Like I was wanting to be consistent, not only in my quotations, but in my own prose, consistent with Tolkien's usage. Um, and so the places where I was using random capitals or randomly hyphenated uh, phrases, they tried to change those uh, to accepted modern usage. And I was like, no way, don't do that, right? Um, I'm following the usage of the Hobbit I want to. And they were like, but he's all over the place, right? It doesn't make any sense. Like sometimes elves are capitalized. Sometimes elf is, cap is, is not capitalized. Like, you know, it's he's just inconsistent all over the place. And uh, Alyssa and I, Alyssa did a lot of work on this, and she and I were saying, no, like, actually, it makes sense. It's not that it's just random. It's just that you don't see the pattern, right? But there is a pattern there, and there was a pattern there. Um, uh, and it wasn't even actually that hard uh, to see once you saw it, right? I mean, Tolkien tends to capitalize, by the way, in case you're curious, the word elf. It's not to say that there's no errors and no inconsistencies, but there is a clear general pattern. Um, when he's referring to, like, the race of elves, right? He does use the word elf as a common noun. Like, in other words, this is shocking, right? He uses, he capitalizes it when it's a proper noun, and he doesn't capitalize it when he's using it as a common noun. Imagine that, right? But that is generally uh, reflects the usage. And some, when he sometimes when he just refers to like, and there were two elves over there, he uses the lowercase, right? Um, but uh, but uses the uppercase when it's like you, referring to like elf is the name of the species, right? Anyway. Um, that's just one example, but that's not the Christopher Tolkien example. This was not a, that was not a, a Christopher Tolkien uh, challenge. The biggest is the most uh, emphatic and, uh, one with this. We're going to come across later on in this book. It's in the Athrobeth. Um, Christopher's going to do this again. Uh, and it was Sparrow Alden in her paper at Mythmoot 2. We'll never forget this. One of my favorite Mythmoot papers of all time. There's been a lot of awesome Mythmoot papers, but this was one of my favorites. Um, uh, it was Sparrow who caught who basically saw the pattern that uh, Tolkien was using in the thing that Christopher just dismisses as inconsistent, as like erroneous, and which he assumes, not without reason, because this happens a lot, right? When Tolkien is combining different texts and switching back and forth, sometimes inconsistencies make their way into the text, right? Inconsistencies about which version of the name is used or whatever else, like that kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, but uh, but anyway, again, so whenever Christopher Tolkien starts talking about how inconsistent his father's usage is, I'm always like, I have a little reservation, right? Um, and it makes me want to say, like, can, can I see it? The inconsistent version? Can you just give us the inconsistent with the inconsistencies? Because maybe there is a pattern there. Maybe there's not. You know, very possible they're just errors. But maybe I reason to think that there are some reasons. So... 
I'm, I wish I were building up to a revelation of like this enormous, brilliant, genius insight I've had into why he's shifting around in the tenses here. I don't because Christopher doesn't give us the whole thing, right? Um, but uh, I just don't have the data to draw that conclusion. Um, but what I am saying is I don't know, right? I would be uh, interested to see if maybe there is a pattern that Christopher is missing because um, it's happened before, I think. Uh, but anyway, and I can't remember what the other example was. Somebody else, some, some, one of you might remember. It was definitely earlier in our History of Middle-Earth series. There was another place, which another thing which Christopher was dismissing as a mistake, and I was arguing that it was not a mistake. I can't, I, I'm forgetting now what that was. But anyway, um, so... With that preamble to this slide, let me read the slide about how, this, how he was struggling with tenses. Christopher. In all these cases, except he hated her and feared her, on page 26, the tense was changed from past to present. So he's talking about he changed, in the published Silmarillion, the tense of these verbs from past to present. The change on page 28 seems in any case mistaken. Manway and Melkor were brethren in the thought of Iluvatar. And to make any of them was probably a misjudgment. That's a significant confession, right? To make any of... So he tried to regularize the tenses so that it would not be jumping around between present and past, right? And Christopher says, in retrospect, that was probably... It was probably a misjudgment to make any changes. But the problem is real. So I kind of regret doing it, but I kind of don't. Right? Or rather... Like, there's a real problem here, right? Something needs to be done. I'm not sure that I did the right thing or that I should have done it the way that I did, but there's a real problem here. Um, uh, but the problem is real. A leading consideration in the preparation of the text was the achievement of coherence and consistency. And a fundamental problem was uncertainty as to the mode by which, in my father's later thought, the lore of the Eldar had been transmitted. But I now think that I attached too much importance to the aim of consistency, which may be present when not evident, and was too ready to deal with difficulties simply by eliminating them. Oh, man. This is, I think, the most important confession that he makes in this entire section. Right? I mean, every part of this. A leading consideration in the preparation of the text was the achievement of coherence and, co and consistency. That's a big deal, right? He's telling us a very important thing about his editorial process there, right? And I think not just his editorial practice. Because, again, here's me trying to, again, trying to interpret what, or guess what Tolkien's, what might have been in Tolkien's mind by guessing what was in Christopher's mind. But, again... I am willing to operate under the assumption that if Christopher decided that that um, achievement of coherence and consistency ought to be a leading consideration in the preparation of the text, I think that he thought that because his father thought that, right? Because he knew that that's one of the primary things that Tolkien himself had been shooting for when he was trying to fix the Silmarillion, when he was trying to put the Silmarillion in order, um, one of the things that he was concerned about, worried about, attempting to do, 
was to achieve coherence and consistency across the text. And this fits with what we've seen already, right? With the patterns that we've been noticing. Um, consistency, not just internal consistency, but consistency with the Lord of the Rings. Coherence, right? Does it all fit together? And does it all fit together to make the kind of sense that this kind of story should make, that the Lord of the Rings kind of story, in a sense, should make, right? Yeah, those things are clearly very important to Tolkien as he's coming back to the Silmarillion. So it makes sense that this would be a guiding principle for Christopher as he's trying to edit and publish the Silmarillion. Um, and a fundamental problem was uncertainty as to the mode by which, in my father's later thought, the lore of the Eldar had been transmitted. So back to the frame. Right? Back to the frame. The tense thing, obviously, is going to be affected a lot by the frame. Right? Is this Alfwina speaking? Is this Alfwina recording in the present tense conversations with Pengalot? Right? Who would was would be telling in the past tense about what happened before, right? Or is this text that we're reading a literary a literary composition by a later person who might tell it in the historical present, right? Um, agreed. The tenses are going to be deeply affected by the mode of transmission of this text, right? So here's Christopher admitting the question of the frame matters a lot, right? Has a big impact, not just on individual elements of the text or passages in the text, but on how the text is received as a whole, right? Really big deal. And then finally, the meatiest, juiciest confession of all. I now think that I attached too much importance to the aim of consistency, which may be present when not evident, and was too ready to deal with difficulties simply by eliminating them. I cut too much stuff out of the Silmarillion just because I was afraid that it didn't fit. And, you know, his, uh, his favorite um, mechanism, you know, for solving these problems is just with an X-Acto knife, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, very significant. Very significant. Um Yeah, Jennifer, that's exactly the question. Um, making the uh, Manway and Melkor were brethren in the thought of Iluvatar is a different sentence from Manway and Melkor are brethren in the thought of Iluvatar, right? I mean, think about that one, right? It's a big deal. And he mentions this explicitly because um, it would be a big deal to change that. And therefore, he's acknowledging that some of these changes that he's making just to make it consistent are big choices that he's not really excited about making or that he did make retroactively. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's... Yeah, excellent. Bruce, I think you've you've really hit the nail on the head as to why, personally, I wanted, would, would rather have seen a frame. And I don't care. If the frame, I, I, I know there would be problems, it would be challenging, it would be difficult in various ways, but Bruce has nailed it exactly. He says, the lack of frame leads to the requirements of consistency. If it was a narrator, there could be inconsistencies. But without a frame, the narrator becomes the voice of God. And that's exactly it. It is exactly the way in which 
the Silmarillion comes across like scripture, right? Those things which were just quoth Pengalov before, you cut out quoth Pengalov, and now it becomes this ex-cathedra declaration of the truth, when it was explicitly an opinion being given, a biased opinion being given by an elf, right? From the elvish point of view, contextualized as such, right? In the original text, and you remove that contextualization, and now it's completely different. And Bruce, I agree. Now, consistencies stand out like crazy. It looks... If there were inconsistencies in the narrative, and you're explaining how the the, the frame and how the narrative got to you, right? Um, there's uh, there's a lot of grace that that does buy. I agree with you, right? Um, but uh, But without it, without it, any inconsistency does just look incompetent, right? Oh, man. So agree. Um, and so admire Christopher, can I just say, for all the... He didn't have to make these confessions, right? I mean, he's not giving us the text of the Valaquinta here, because we've already gotten most of it, right? So we don't get the whole thing. Um, he's just going through and telling us the important bits, and he's going out of his way to tell us the bits where he feels that he messed up. Awesome, right? And many thanks to him. I mean, without this effort, we wouldn't have those Gandalf sentences, which we now have. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, that is... Uh, um, so, many kudos to Christopher for uh, doing this, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Now, Muriel and Finway. All right. Okay. Now it is told that in the bearing of her son, Muriel was consumed in spirit and body, and that after his birth, she yearned for rest from the labor of living. And she said to Finway, Never again shall I bear a child, for strength that would have nourished the life of many has gone forth into Feanaro. Can I just say I'm really glad we didn't end up with the terminal vowel there permanently? Then Manway granted the prayer of Muriel, and she went to Lorien and laid her down to sleep upon a bed of flowers, changed to beneath a silver tree. And there her body, her fair body, remained unwithered in the keeping of the maidens of Este, but her spirit passed to rest in the halls of Mandos. Finway's grief was great, and he gave to his son all the love that he had for Muriel, for Feanara was like his mother in voice and countenance. Yet Finway was not content, and he desired to have more children. He spoke, therefore, changed to, after some years, therefore, he spoke, to Manway, saying, Lord, behold, I am bereaved, and alone among the Eldar I am without a wife, and must hope for no sons save one, and no daughter. Whereas Ingwe and Olwe beget many children in the bliss of Amman, must I remain ever so? For I deem that Muriel will not return again ever from the house of Vire. All right. Um. <laughs> Brandon, yeah, I have to admit, Brandon <laughs> says, Fanaro, pizza and subs. Yeah, no, I, I hear ya. I hear ya. Um. <laughs> Stephen says that Muriel's going to take an early retirement from living. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's the thing. 
the whole divorce of Finway section kind of blows my mind a little bit. No. It blows my mind a lot. There is nothing that blows my mind um, in this entire post-Lord of the Rings Silmarillion process like the divorce of Finway and Muriel. And here's the thing. We have seen... Um, uh, we have seen that Tolkien is struggling, right? He is struggling with these two really important, really equal writerly impulses, right? The integrity of the myth, on the one hand, right? These powerful stories that he feels to be powerful and important, on the one hand, and the desire for consistency, the desire to make it work, the desire to have his mythology be part be a consistent part of a secondary world in which you can invest secondary belief, right? And those struggling to reconcile those two things is leading him into a bunch of problems, right? And we've been talking about those for weeks now, right? We've spent months looking at, first and foremost, the orc issue, right? How can we reconcile the myth of the orcs as this sort of embodiment of hatred and cruelty and evil on the one hand with St. Augustine on the other hand, right? How can we make this work? Um, we've seen the children of the gods problem, right? Um, and how he's going to end up reconciling that. Um, and now... He's going out of his way to create a problem. And I don't get it. I don't get it one bit. If the divorce of Finway and Muriel were a like, crucial part, part of the myth from the beginning, right? Like Luthien is, right? Like the orcs are, even, right? I would get it. I would get it, right? This... I don't get. Why is he introducing this problem here? We were we just had Muriel dying very conveniently back when she was not Muriel yet, right? She was, you know, the, but it doesn't matter, right? We saw Feanor's mom, right, dying perfectly peaceably by falling to her death off a cliff in Middle-earth, right? We had conveniently disposed of Feanor's mom in order to introduce the schism between Feanor and Fingolfin, right? Have them be half-brothers. And that was fine. And we, we had that wrapped up, no problem, right? All we had to do was drop Indus at the time, Muriel later off a cliff on the way to Valinor, and Bob's your uncle, right? You have an ex-wife, sort of, right? Now, look, I get it. This doesn't solve the problem, right? Because we're elves here. Right, so merely dropping her off a cliff isn't enough to solve that problem if you want to have a second wife problem. So, okay, but really, we have to do this? We have to go this far? And it's, um, I don't know, I, um, um, yeah, Josiah says falling off a cliff is too pedestrian a death for the mother of the great Feanor. Maybe, maybe the, her death is not sufficiently superlative, Right. It's not enough just to be the first person ever to fall to her death in Middle Earth. Right. Like it's not that's not that's not cool enough. Uh, the uh, mother of Feanaro deserves more. Um, 
But, um, okay. So we're manufacturing problems. Tolkien is running up against this problem in a big way. And I have to admit, one consequence of writing out this narrative, Finway had never been my very favorite character, right? I mean, I don't know too many people who are like die-hard Finway fans, you know? Uh, I mean, like, seriously, like, how many people do you know who are like, Finway is my favorite character from the Silmarillion, right? I mean, you know. Um, but I... Uh, But this, come on. I mean, don't you lose a little respect for Finway here? <laughs> I like Marie's paraphrase. Everyone else gets to have kids. Why can't I, too? Why does my wife get a say in this? <laughs> oh, oh, so, so true. Um, yeah, yeah. See, but now, Kit, here's the fascinating thing, Right? I don't think this is a Catholicism problem. In some ways, we could say the Orc problem is a Catholicism problem. I mean, again, like, I, you know, if not for St. Augustine, it would be an easier thing, right? Fine, just let Morgoth create them, right? If we just keep the Orcs as constructs, we don't have any problems anymore, right? But no, he doesn't want to do that. And in part, that is a Catholic problem. I totally agree with that. Um, I do think that, that that's a major factor there. But here... Uh, uh, yeah, divorce. I mean, in, in, in some ways, though, it's exactly what's, um, it's exactly what surprises me about this. You'd think if he were wanting to bring his, like, the overall theology and philosophy of his text more in line with Catholic doctrine, he wouldn't go out of his way to introduce divorce, which is he's doing here, right? Because, Marie, exactly as you said, till death do us part doesn't mean so much for elves, right? That's, that's your problem, right? I, I, I mean, according to, the, to Catholic doctrine, marriage is until death, right? You can't, like, divorce is not a thing, right? Um, you can't undo a marriage, you can annul it, which means, like, let's say it never happened. That's a different question, right? But, um, but again, like, you can't just be like, and we're done, right? No. Marriage, so fine. But that's exactly what he's introducing here. He's introducing divorce. Yes, it's post-mortem divorce, right? But there still has to be divorce proceedings, right? Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, but see, Kit, no, it's not an annulment. He's not annulling his marriage, because he's not like, because, I mean, if he's, if he's annulling his marriage with Muriel, then, like, then Feanor becomes the bastard, right? And that, no comments, please, on that sentence. <laughs> Let me just back slowly away from that sentence. <laughs> yeah, we can't have that, Marie, can we? Uh, but in any way, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> truer words have never been spoken, says Matt. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so 
Exactly, Alyssa. It's a problem about the mode of elvish living, what it means for an elf to be embodied and have that certain elvish relationship between the inclinations of the spirit and the body. And that does seem to be exactly where this is taking him, right? It almost seems to me like he's pursuing this one train of thought that is the train of thought which seems ultimately to have its root in Fingolfin and Feanor, right? I want them to be half-brothers. I want that. I want to. I want to emphasize the distance there. I want that to happen, right? And then he finds himself smack up against this challenge, right? So, but ooh, gosh, how do you get half brothers if you're elves? Because you don't part at death, right? So, how does that work? Must I remain ever so? Well, let's look at how he carries on with this. Then Manway considered the words of Finway, and after a time he summoned all the counselors of the Eldar. This is such a big problem that all the Valar have to get together on this. And in their hearing, Mandos spoke this doom. And this is one of the longest speeches of Mandos in the history of Mandos. This is the law of Iluvatar for you. Change to, this is the way of life that Iluvatar hath ordained for you, his children, as you know well. The firstborn shall take one spouse only and have no other in this life while Arda endureth. But this law takes no account, change to, but herein no account is taken of death. This doom is therefore now made by the right of lawgiving that Iluvatar committed to Manwe, that if the spirit of a spouse, husband or wife, forsaking the body, shall for any cause pass into the keeping of Mandos, then the living shall be permitted to take another spouse. But this can only be if the former union be dissolved forever. Therefore, the one that is in the keeping of Mandos must there remain until the end of Arda, and shall not awake again or take bodily form. For none among the Quendi shall have two spouses at one time alive and awake, but since it is not to be thought that the living shall, by his or her will, alone confine the spirit of the other to Mandos, this disunion shall come to pass only by the consent of both. And after the giving of the consent, ten years of the Valar shall pass ere Mandos confirms it. Within that time either party may revoke this consent, but when Mandos has confirmed it, and the living spouse has wedded another, it shall be irrevocable until the end of Arda." This is the doom of Namo in this matter. Whew. Ha. Huh. Okay. We follow that. Okay. You cannot have two spouses. Wedding, marriage is for all time. Shall take one spouse only and have no other in this life while Arda endureth. But there's a loophole. Death is the loophole. Right? Have no other in this life while Arda endureth. Right? Aha! So, you can have one wife in life and the other in death, but she can't come out of death. Right? So if she's in Mandos and then she can, then you can agree to your post-mortem divorce proceedings, right? You can, so, it's not till death to us part, but death gives you the opportunity to part. 
So first your wife dies and you are left bereaved. And then you have to like submit divorce papers to your dead wife, right? This, this is why I was giggling when I was reading this. I'm sorry. Like I, I, I'm probably, I'm certainly very immature. Uh, and I may, um, I, and I may be quite insensitive as well, but I was just, I was just dying, working my way through this. Like, cause like, seriously, like, that's what we're going to say. We're going to say that like, it's like, oh, my wife died. Oh no, my wife is dead. Now, now I'm a divorcer, right? Because she died, right? She had the nerve. She had the nerve to go to, she started it by dying, right? And so I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to I'm going to pursue divorce proceedings against my dead wife. And she, but she has to agree, right? So if beyond the grave she agrees, then it's okay to get divorced, but only if she never returns back again. So it is a, you are you are dooming her in fact. By initiating divorce proceedings, you are dooming her to permanent residence in Mandos. You can never emerge from Mandos. Now she has to agree to it, right? Um she has to agree to it. Uh, so it's not like you can unilaterally uh, doom her to Mandos for all time, right? Um, but that's basically what you're asking, right? Oh, dear, you died. I miss you so much, but please don't come back. Right? Can, we, can we agree on that? Can we agree that you, that's, if you could just, uh, you know, it's like a how can I miss you if you won't go away kind of situation, right? Like, okay, so if you, if you, I'm really sorry that you're gone, but now that you're gone, please don't ever come back because I want to marry somebody else, right? Um, <laughs> okay, okay. And Muriel, right, from Muriel's perspective, what is she saying? She's like, okay, um, you know, like, before I die, I'm like, well, the strength that could have gone into many sons have gone. I'm just so tired, right? I'm going to lay me down here. And then, but, and then after death, she's like, and I want so much to not be your wife anymore. That I would rather remain in purgatory for all the rest of the history of Arda than emerge and be your wife again, <laughs> right? I mean, like, that it, it was so bad, right? This, this relationship was, I want out of this. I'm willing to pay almost any price to stay out of this marriage with you. If this is my only loophole, then I'm fine. I'm going to hang out with Vire, right? I'm doing embroidery. She's weaving. We're fine. We're going to have, we're going to have, well, it's not girls' night. We're going to have girls' millennia no we're gonna have the entire like you know hundreds of thousands of years um whew, right um yeah yeah um <laughs> oh man i just i just um and it's true kimber fabric arts are time consuming that's right it's a long-term project so she's busy and that's Fine, um, but um, oh, um, 
<laughs> yeah, Arthur says, then boom, Finway's in Mando's and Muriel can't get away from him. I mean, exactly. Turns out that Muriel was the real loser in the whole Formino situation, right? Because here she was being like, finally, some peace and quiet, right? I finally arranged for some alone time. And then what happens? Finway's the first one who dies. So that's just the two of them alone in Mando's. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, Arthur. Holy cow. <laughs> Talk about awkward, right? <laughs> I mean, yikes. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> so I, I just... Um, uh, yeah, now, Marie, I agree. What seems to have happened is that Finway got impatient. Uh, you can say that Muriel needed some time to herself, and if Finway had just waited, she might have wanted to come back, maybe. This is why the 10 year, the 10 years, that's really short. I mean, I know 10 years are like it's 100 years of the sun, but so what? That's tiny, right? That's a, it's a minuscule amount of time. So seriously, Muriel can't get backsies on that? After, say, 20 years or 100 years or maybe 10,000 years have gone by, I'd be like, you know what? It would be kind of nice. I'll walk in the park right now. I've kind of, as much, Vire, I've really enjoyed our, like, girl's eternity, Nelson, exactly. I've, I've, this has been great and everything, but um, I kind of, you know, like, I'm feeling a little vitamin D deficiency. Can I get outside every once in a while? And be like, no, mm -mm, no, no backsies on that permanent divorce with your, because your husband is married to somebody else. Um, you, uh, no, you can't leave ever. Um, oh man. Yeah. No, I know Josiah. I know there's more to come. I know uh, Finway is not going to kind of, it's, it's, it's going to get better than this. I, I, I know we're not done with this issue, but, um, I, I just, I, I'm sorry. This is, uh, kind of hilarious but the reason that i struggle with this so much again is that he's like begging for these problems right i mean this didn't have to happen like okay so they're not half brothers right? just suck it up and make them not half brothers right but that no no he doesn't want to do that he he he's leaning into this right He's leaning into this. Right, exactly, Margaret. And then Feanor dies pretty soon and never leaves either, right? Um, uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing that certainly seems to emerge from this. Oh, hang on, I think I've got one more before I leave this subject. Don't I have one more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is said that Muriel answered Mandos, saying, I came hither to escape from the body <laughs> and my husband, and I do not desire ever to return to it or him. And after ten years, the doom of disunion was spoken, added, and Muriel has dwelt ever since in the house of Vaire, and it is her part to record there the histories of the kin of Finway and all the deeds of the Noldor. And it is her part to record there the histories of the kin of Finway? Really? So she spends the whole rest of eternity? Like, making embroideries? Depicting the histories of the children of her husband and his second wife? Re really? Really? 
Continuing on. And in the years following, a change to, but when three more years had passed, three years after the ten, presumably, Finway took as a second spouse Indus of the Vanyar, of the kin slash the sister of Ingwe. And she bore five fair children, of whom her two sons are most renowned in the history of the Noldor. But her eldest child was a daughter, Findis, and she bore also two other daughters, Irame and Faniel. Change to Faniel and Irame. Okay. Um, I... Yeah, Francis, she did have to make him an embroidery of Fanor in the Kinslaying. How proud she must have been, says Francis. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, Josiah, I do agree. I can't imagine she had a uh, high job satisfaction, uh, during the kinslaying incidents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Nelson, do Finway's daughters exist in the published Silmarillion? No, no reference to them in the published Silmarillion. Um, let me just start with that here. Um, notice we get a couple more data points on this trend that we were talking about last week, right? Look how he has gone out of his way here to, and this is an addition, right? We didn't get anything but the boys in the earlier tradition, right? Um, you could be forgiven for thinking that Finway only had three children, right? The three boys before, right? And now he's emphasizing, Tolkien is emphasizing that Indus and Finway had five children, right? Three of them were girls. Now, again, the girls are outnumbering the boys. And the eldest is a daughter, right? Findus. Uh, so the, the eldest is a daughter. The, the, the girls outnumber the boys. Again, as we saw before, like when, with that, uh, when we were looking at the balance of that passage on she who shall, you know, Ismay, the, she who shall become Aravel uh, and Goadriel, He's not changing the stories, right? He's not reallocating stories that had been allocated to a masculine character and giving them to a female character instead. He's not doing anything like that. Um, but there does seem to be a fairly consistent attempt to emphasize more female roles uh, in this story, right? Just to point out the fact that Finway had three daughters, Right? And you'll notice, of course, I passed by it at the time because I was too busy giggling about other things. Um, he mentions it in his plea to men, uh, to Manway, uh, uh, Finway does, right? Um, Alone among the Eldar, I am without a wife and must have and must hope for no son save one and no daughter. That's a, an arguing point, right? Can I get to get a daughter also? Because, you know... Daughters are fun, too, and I don't get any. And that's really... Uh, and that's really interesting. I think, again, you know, it's... Um, it's something that I think... Because I don't, I don't remember this at all before. I don't... Re I mean, it's not that he never had female characters, as we know. Like, there are some very important ones. But he seems to be going out of his way to reconcile the... At least sort of numerically, uh, and by weight in some places, as we saw with the Arathel and Goadriel passage uh, earlier on last week. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Marie, I agree. Fanor has no daughters, and that's kind of a big deal. Um, he's giving everyone else daughters to make up for it. Exactly. I mean, in the in the old stories, Ardevel. I mean, she's like alone, right? She's totally alone, almost totally. Are there any other girls? I mean, there's the wives. Most of them not even named, right? I mean, we know that the men got married on account of they brought forth children, right? But we don't know their names. Um, and we don't know the names of... I mean, there are very few women who get... I mean, get but the few are big, right? Luthien is important, obviously. But um, a lot of... Right? Idril, agreed, agreed. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Now, Alyssa, you are absolutely right. Alyssa is uh, uh, very, very gently uh, trying to steer me away from the comedy of this uh, passage. And I agree there is a gravely poignant point here. And I was about to try to bring it around to exactly this kind of thing, Alyssa, but you say it really well. Um, uh, he's t uh, she's referring to two tensions uh, like the, the tension in between two elements of the myth as presented, right? Um, as, as that presented as given things which are good in them, themselves, right? On the one hand, we have the function of elves to wed and beget children, adding to the beauty of Arda with greater consonance of spirits and the new introduction and the introduction of new life, right? So that especially these early elves, right? Wanting to, uh, bring forth new children for the, for the, for the, uh, to add to the beauty of Arda. Absolutely, this is important, right? And two, the nature of the elvish spirit, which is generally more dominant than the coexistent body, so as even to consume it and make way for men the followers. Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering here, Alyssa, is which comes first? That is, that tension, or uh, the perception of that tension, or that doctrine, especially the second one. That, or that is to say, like, which is the cause and which is the effect? Is those, or do those the coexistence of those two ideas cause the tension, or does do the two ideas emerge from the tension? Right, if if that makes any sense, um, because I'm kind of inclining towards the latter, honestly. Um, this is our segue towards, and I'm not going to get very far in it tonight. Um, we'll we'll begin it, but I won't get too far in it. Um, the I, I mean the laws and customs uh, among the Eldar, but the one very serious thing about this whole postmortem divorce issue is it is causing Tolkien to think very carefully about elves. That seems like a weird thing to say, doesn't it? Like, kind of, didn't the whole story start with elves? Yeah, it did. But notice how. Back up a few steps, right? Take a few steps back from where we are in the Silmarillion right now, right? And kind of look back over the whole history, right? And you sort of think to yourself, like, when did, when did everybody else in the story surpass elves in detail of world building and creation and subcreation? Do you see what I mean? Like, the elves were the whole story at the beginning. Like, humans were secondary, right? Um, and the whole, like, second age, third age, 
wasn't a glimmer in his eye at the beginning. The end of the story was the end of the, you know, what is now called the first day, what is now in this period of time, in this period of Tolkien's history called the first age, was was the whole story. Um, you know, pre-modern story in the old version, right? Again, it was all about the elves. It's all about the elves. Now, he's written The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He's brought these two stories together. Now, we've lived among men. In The Lord of the Rings, I mean. We've lived among hobbits. Right, we've even gotten to know dwarves pretty well, but elves are still kind of a mystery. What are they? What is it like being an elf? What are like? Okay, so elves are immortal, but what does that mean? Right, elves are fading. Okay, what does that mean? How does that work? Right, all of these things which were sort of mythic concepts that he was just sort of waving his hands at, and I, I don't mean that in a derogative way, right? In a derogatory way. That's what I meant to say. I don't mean this in a derogatory way, right? It wasn't important in the old myths. He didn't have to explain. What are the mechanics, right? When you say an elf is fading, how is it fading? In what way is it fading? What causes it to fade? We re Remember, we talked about this before. There were even gestures in the old days towards giving some kind of mechanism for that. Remember the business about the air and the sun? changing the air and this having an effect on elves, right? Even that, some of that stuff we can hear all the way back in the Book of Oz Tales, right? So the impulse to give some kind of mechanical explanation, but how does it work, right, was there in Tolkien from the beginning, but it was very much de-emphasized uh, compared to just sort of letting the myths be, as it were, right? Accepting the basic facts. Elves, their lives last for as long as Arda. So when their bodies are killed, their spirits remain. Okay. Um, elves fade. Okay. Great. Right? We don't need, we don't absolutely have to have, um, we don't absolutely have to have a mechanism. Right? Now we do. As we were already seeing earlier on when we were looking at the Annals of Amon, we can see that that's one of the impulses that is being given its head, almost, right? Or at least being given a great deal more reign um, in this period now, now that he's trying to reconcile the Silmarillion story with the Lord of the Rings. And one of the consequences? We get here and find almost everything else in Tolkien's world is better understood than elves, right? Elves are now almost, almost, not quite, but almost the least well-explained, well-defined creatures in Tolkien's world. That's a big extreme statement. There'll be lots of exceptions to it, but you see what I mean? We know how the humans work and about human culture and human history, but we know very little about the elves. Um, you know, in some ways, actually, Marie, I'm not sure... If you read the Silmarillion and you read the Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure that our knowledge of Ents does not compete, actually. We don't know that much about Ents, but we do know some things, right? Um, as far as, like, how they work, right? The whole sheep become, come like shepherds and shepherds like sheep thing, that's kind of more than we know. We don't know, like why it happens or by what power it happens, but that the kind of thing that Treebeard says is going on all the time, in some ways I feel like actually, I kind of know that at least as 
uh, at least is like th that kind of helps me understand how the life cycle of Ents works even better than the vague, though powerfully mythic, concept of the elves are fading, right? Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I personally, I don't even totally accept Ents uh, from that. Now, Brian, I absolutely agree with you. Brian Dimmick says that, the, you know, the mystery surrounding elves contributes a lot to the atmosphere of the Lord of the Rings. Totally agree. It absolutely does. Right. And I think there's a good reason why, as we were learning more about humans and hobbits and dwarves and even ants. Right. We were not learning as much. At, we, some things. Right. Some things come up and get explained like Legolas telling us about elf dreams and the way that elves don't exactly sleep in the same way. Right. That's that comes up in the two. So there are some moments where we're like, OK, I'm now learning things I didn't know about how elves tick. Right. Sort of physically, mechanically, psychologically. Right. Um, but still not nearly so many as uh, as we get from other uh, perspectives. And I agree, Brian, there are good reasons why we shouldn't. Right. Um, however. One of the things I think we see in this whole passage, right, is that Tolkien is finally, I want to use the adverb finally here, Tolkien is finally turning, you know, his inquiring subcreative mind to the elves at long last and beginning to ask of the elves in his stories some of these hard questions, right? Um, what does it mean? So the elves live as long as Arda. How does that work? What is the fading? And what is the mechanism? What is it like? And so here, right? Maybe the answer to the question, and this is similar to the answer that several of you were giving, maybe the answer to the question, why does he borrow trouble for himself with this whole post-mortem divorce issue, which didn't have to happen, right? Why does he do it? Why does he go there at all? Um, I think that he liked the fact that it raised these questions. And he clearly really enjoys thinking through the answer to these questions, right? Yeah, so, hmm, what does till death do us part mean when you're an elf, right? Um, because, of course, that raises a bigger question. What does death mean to an elf, Right? Uh, what is parted, what is being parted at all, right? You know, one way of understanding human death is that you've got the soul and you've got the body, um, and those two things are usually joined together, and when those two things are separated, we call that separation death, right? When the soul and the body are separate from each other. And that's why... Uh, seeing either one of them on their own is unsettling, right, as uh, C.S. Lewis points out, right? Uh, both the dead corpse and the uh, human ghost, right, are both not just frightening or disgusting, but eerie, right, in some kind of way. Because it's, you know, again, like those two things, it's like, it's not, it's not right. Like those things are supposed to be together. Anyway, so, but, it, but that wouldn't be exactly how it would happen with elves, Right. And if not, then what? How does it happen? How does it work? Right? So these kinds of questions appear to be um, 
exactly the kinds of questions which are sort of almost as if like they're suddenly opening up in front of him. Like he's never asked these questions or like, never allowed himself to ask these questions before. He was never writing that kind of story before, but now he is. And all of a sudden, um, uh, all of a sudden, he is loving it. He is loving thinking about this and answering these questions. He can't help himself, right? Um, and Brian, that's exactly what it sounds like to me, too. Like he was working on the story of Feanor. Right. And he was getting at the, you know, the the problems in the House of Finway. And he was thinking about how the problems in the House of Finway came about. And then he gets to the, re, you know, he thinks of remarriage as a as a mechanism. Right. That would sort of help that story, the problems in the House of Finway story, I mean. And uh, and then now, like that opens Pandora's box, you know, and now he's gets to really sit down and say, yeah, so what does Elvish immortality mean? Right. And I do think that that is, uh, Marie, as you were suggesting, um, really one of the essential things here. Right. Especially the idea, as you say, Marie, about being tied to the world until the end of Arda. Right. What are the implications of that? What is that? What does that look like? What does that feel like? How does it work? Um, and we get the laws and customs of the Eldar, right? Uh, we, get, we, we, we see him now for the first time fleshing it out, right? Answering the, asking these questions, answering these questions, and he's not going to let go of this issue with Finway and Muriel. This isn't his final word, right? What we were reading wasn't his final word on uh, uh, on the divorce issue, right? Um, again, now I'm not trying to claim that you know I am 100% certain that the issue of the the you know divorce of uh, Muriel and Finway is what is the root of all of this Elvis. You know, we don't know the dates of this stuff. It could be that he had already been working on that. You know, I don't know exactly my, whether that happened, whether this, the Finway and Muriel stuff came about as a result of him asking these questions already, or whether they prompted him to write those. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that here we are in the late fifties and he's never asked these questions before, or at least he's never really devised answers that were satisfying answers. Right. And there is no question, as I, um, uh, there is no question that he's going to be opening cans of worms here, right? He's going to be creating problems for himself that he probably wouldn't create uh, if he just kind of let it go, right? Um, but he's okay with that. Because again, that that principle of saying like, no, you know, I want this to work. I want these old myths and stories, and this seems to be, you know, back to the point, you know, Christopher's point about the importance of consistency and coherence, right? One way, I think, perhaps to try to encapsulate what Tolkien wanted from the Silmarillion, right? What needed to happen. To his, what did he need to do to his stories before they could be published now, right? Which was so different 
They were ready for publication in 1937. Now they're miles away from publication. Why? Answer, because he wants his old stories to be the kind of story that you could invest this sort of secondary belief in, that fit, that was satisfying, that would satisfy in similar ways, not be the same kind of narrative or at the same level of detail or from the same kind of narrative point of view as The Lord of the Rings, but to be the same kind of satisfying, to have the same kind of consistent and satisfying world building beneath it. Right, such that we as readers could invest secondary belief in it. That seems to be one of his fundamental goals. And that was honestly, at the end of the day, the rock that the Silmarillion wrecked on, right? Why he didn't finish it in his lifetime. Had it just been about finishing putting it together like he was doing in 37, I'm sure he could have done that, right? But he didn't, right? It never did happen. And I think here we can really begin to see more of that. We can begin to see why. But although, because um, yeah, it is, Josiah, more fun to solve the puzzle than to pass over it. And he clearly enjoys this, right? Um, the laws and customs of the among the Eldar, you know, that's not going to make it into the published text. It wouldn't have made it into the published text, probably, right? Betty might have put it in as an appendix, but, um, you know, had, had he published the Silmarillion, he might have put that in as an appendix, maybe. But, um, but this is fun, right? And I think Tolkien really enjoys it. Um, anyway, um, well, I've talked about it. I don't have time to start it, but that's okay. We'll start it next week. I'm not in a hurry. Um... Next week, we'll come back and we'll do as much as we can of the laws and customs among the Eldar. Um, and what I want to be looking at here is similar to what we've been doing all along, right? What can we see about the kind of story, you know, what, what kind of world building do we see him doing, right? How do we see him, what kinds of questions does he seem to be answering, right? Um, what, can we see any sort of similar patterns, in how these stories, they're not exactly narratives, right? But like how his world is, like what is the direction in which his world is growing? Um, what kind of similarities in pattern uh, can we see uh, um, uh, as we see how the laws and customs among the Eldar is growing? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Okay, all right. I'll let you guys go. I, I, I'm tempted to jump in and just like, well, let's just do one or two slides, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Let's just save it. It'll be cleaner, right, to start next week. Uh, so let's do that. And um, uh, yeah. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for your patience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with me here uh, tonight. Uh, but we will do Laws of Customs among the Eldar next week, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.